0: Welcome back. Today, Derek Lane and I continue our conversation, mapping the Agile Manifesto and its 12 principles to making better barbecue. In this episode, we cover the final two principles.
1: I think what I've learned in the process with the Agile Manifesto over, you know, a couple of decades is that it's actually the reverse. Uh, the when, I, when you first read it, it's an introduction to a set of things that if you choose to pursue this in order to understand it uh, it will not only take you some time you're going to have to go back and then wrestle with what you thought you understood before
0: welcome to the long way around the barn where we discuss many of today's technology adoption and transformation challenges and explore varied ways to get to your desired outcomes there's usually more than one way to achieve your goals Sometimes the path is simple. Sometimes the path is long, expensive, complicated, and or painful. In this podcast, we explore options and recommended courses of action to get you to where you're going now.
1: The Long Way Around the Barn is brought to you by Trility Consulting. For those wanting to defend or extend their market share, Trility simplifies, automates, and secures your world your way. Learn how you can experience reliable delivery results at trility.io. All
0: right, so we've covered a lot of ground so far, and I suspect that one of the challenges that people may have with, with reading the manifesto and the associative principles is there is just meat in every phrase or segment of these sentences. Like, this actually takes a while to sit down, dissect, or deconstruct, to understand, to figure out how you apply it in your life, how to go live it. This is an amazingly heavy piece of material or set of material for people to think through and apply. I love it. And I love the fact that we're walking through it.
1: I would agree. I think that that is the the accident. It's, It's accidental in that it's not... People have, are unaware that this is, that that's actually the process. I think one of the benefits, we we have this perception that a manifesto is a declaration up front and that if we just read it, we will immediately grok everything that was intended by whoever put the manifesto together. And I think what I've learned in the process with the Agile manifesto over, you know, a couple of decades is that it's actually the reverse. When when you first read it, it's an introduction to a set of things that if you choose to pursue this in order to understand it, uh, it will not only take you some time, but periodically you're going to have to follow, as we'll talk about with principle number 12, you're going to have to go back and then wrestle with what you thought you understood before. It didn't go far enough. It didn't go wide enough. It didn't go deep enough. It didn't go red enough or or round enough. as it needed to once you went a little further. And I think the real value, one of the real values of of the manifesto is uh, after folks have, I'll say, five or more years of actually being embedded in an agile environment and really struggling through trying to learn agility, uh, that's when I feel like that's a real milestone for them to come back and tease this apart and, and try to break it down word for word and uh, and And put it back together in in the way that they currently understand agility and and see what uh, insights that have they've been able to learn uh, by trying to apply this because it's in the in the application that we understand the theory, uh, which is kind of ironic uh, because it's we believe we understand the theory just by reading it, but we really don't. It's only in, in the application that I think we we extract. The, not only the intent of the, the writers of the manifesto, but uh, the benefit uh, or benefits that they may them, themselves may have not learned yet. They themselves may have not originally intended, you know, seven years later they may have come across it, but they didn't go back and change the manifesto. That's, that's one of the things I point out in the 20-day agility challenge is that uh, this is still version 1.0, This hasn't changed since, uh, you know, February approximately of of, uh, 2001. My understanding is the principles came a little bit later uh, from the actual, uh, the the first page that we we tend to call the manifesto. Um, But anyway, a a few more things to kind of factor in.
0: Well, I think the the co-location of these folks, these folks coming together and working on this, um, And realizing the words and the structures and the intent and the direction is illustrated in this 11th principle. The best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. I would think that the development of the manifesto and the principles themselves are good examples of this team came together... And the designs emerged, the architecture, all of the work emerged um, from the self-organizing team. Well, I think your observation is
1: is really insightful. The fact that there's a bit of recursiveness here that you took people from an extreme programming background, from a scrum background, from a, a feature-driven development background, from an adaptive background uh, in James Highsmith and other uh, other approaches – um, and a cross section of skill sets, and that they weren't all just coders or coming from the same type of role uh, and exposure. And uh, when these uh, so-called lightweight methodologies were uh, uh, at that point in their development, um, these guys got together, uh, as happens from time to time, and you know, conferences of, of folks who who have are like-minded people, and. When they decided to put together this particular, uh, uh, meeting at, uh, the Snowbird, uh, Utah, that's when they were able to then make an, yet another iteration incorporating, uh, a lot of the things that they had learned. And as I've, I've heard about it talked, heard it talked about from the folks who were there, you know, the first, uh, of a three day conference, the first two, two days or so, it was a lot of non getting along. And we're thinking all these folks, you know, everything was, was just happy-go-lucky the whole time. And evidently, it was a lot of debate uh, and, and, and discovery, but it was, it was the emergence, and this is the principle of emergence uh, that we find in the manifesto, the emergence of the pattern of we value this over this, we value this over this, that was able to kind of be extracted from a lot of what they had talked about in order to find a, a, a structure for common ground. And then they could begin to, to organize around that. I think this principle of emergence is, again, uh, as we talked about earlier with best practices, it exposes the the fallacy of this idea of best practices. It's just the best thing I know right now. When I try to set that as the bar from now on, or for the next five years, that, I'm actually hurting myself. I'm 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 uh, discouraging uh, innovation. I'm discouraging growth. I'm discouraging learning because we all have to do it according to a quote best practice. When this uh, principle uh, demonstrates that in order for us to really find out what the best practice is, it has to emerge from the application of what we're trying to do. So in the context of software, uh, that tends to be a software architecture. Uh, again, uh, when this came out in 2001, uh, big business requirements documents were, were, the, were all the rage. You know, every, it was cool. Everybody was doing it. Uh, so requirements were a, a very, uh, hefty element. In the uh, delivery of of software, um, and then we get to designs, and and I often hear that well, user experience and human-centered design and and uh, human factors this wasn't really uh, around uh, at the time of the creation of the Agile Manifesto, but really we do have it in here because this was the kind of thing that while there might not have been an isolated uh, skill set or degree plan or someone who had a title and a role on a project. Uh, that was focused on uh, user experience or some aspect of that, We it really is included in this idea of emergence and this principle in that really what we're saying is uh, the best ideas, the best way to solve problems emerge from self-organizing teams. I think that's a more uh, abstract uh, uh, variation of this uh, idea. And to me, that gets across this idea of emergence. So. We really are looking for the application. We're looking for iterative uh, value to expose itself or to help us pivot. And through that process, uh, better ways of doing things will emerge, which now we're back to the first page, you know, we're, we're learning better ways of doing this. Well, how are we learning it? If we already have best practices, we're learning it because we're applying it. We, we're doing it and we're helping others do it. And those better ways of doing it are emerging.
0: Now, one of the things that I like about this particular principle, uh, just reflecting on my own journey, is I've been in situations in large corporations where there was a designated architecture group and their responsibility was to architect things. And we ended up in situations where uh, we were on the receiving end of all of the architectural thought and direction and plans. And our responsibility was less to question and most to just get it done. And then the architecture uh, ecosystem wasn't readily available to us um, because they had moved on to their next project. So we were given... Um, a set of deliverables from the architect, if you will. And our job was get it done. And what I love about this particular principle is it says, hey, we could absolutely have some people somewhere else in the house who have been involved in the business development side of things, the product side of things. They've been here 147 years. They're only 148 years old. They know things. And it's very valid for those folks to be able to say, hey, Have you considered, or you should consider, or these types of things I've had great success with. But what I love about this is to say, hey, even if you are given fences on the pasture, still bringing together the team, the multidisciplinary team, to discover, explore, define, implement, iterate. That's where the real innovation is happening and so when we were bequeathed documents of instruction there was no innovation there was implementation following the directions so i love this as a counterpoint to that but let me offer this i like your thoughts on this i've actually heard other people say we are agile which in and of itself is is not a correct statement uh, none of us are actually agile we're pursuing becoming more and we're using these principles and practices and guidelines and ideas to foster, facilitate, enable, equip, encourage, and so forth. But I am not agile. I'm actually a blunt force object oftentimes, um, but I'm not agile always. But with that logic, I've heard someone say, because we're agile, we don't actually need to have a roadmap. We don't have documentation. We don't have plans we figured out as we go. And that has been received by other Company cultures as a cowboy mentality that says, "Hey, um, you guys can't tell me how much it's going to cost, how long it's going to take, and you're telling me to just to trust you."
1: Yeah. So let's talk about barbecue. If we're gonna, if I'm gonna have any shot at this, it's not going to be that one. Um, and and the reason it's such a big can of worms is because it is somewhat uh, pervasive. Uh, it's universal. It's this we're borrowing from this uh, hierarchical thinking that we've brought along and in, in not only how we structure ourselves, but how we organize our, our plans and our thoughts for how we're going to execute something. We've been taught that we have to do all the thinking up front and all the planning and the designing or whatever that might requirements, whatever pieces of our elements might apply in our domain. And then we're going to come at, at some point, there's a process where we, uh, identify some cost and and then we uh do some, have some artifacts uh, for instance like what architects might have given uh you in the scenarios you were talking about and then then there's a group that's going to implement it and then then there's a group that's going to put it in production and then there's another group that's going to deal with the maintenance and and support and the upkeep of it and this sequential way of thinking is uh in in and of itself very uh anti agile uh, because now we're, we're we cannot respond to change uh, un- outside of the level at which we're at. If we're at the design level, we can't respond to change in budget. Well, no, that that's not true because we know someone's going to come along with a, a less of a budget and they're going to cut off. Well, yeah, but what happened was is that that timeline was already at, expectation was already set. You you still got to deliver, you know, the same amount of stuff or more with less budget in the same amount of time or less. So we know that, that you do have to respond to change, but it's always in a negative way. It's always in a you've got, got to do more with less type of uh, ecosystem. So I, I think a piece of, of understanding the intent here and in trying to um, create an environment, as we talked about in uh, number five, uh, that uh, allows people and projects to su- succeed, is that we have to think in terms, first of all, of Uh, we have to stop thinking in terms of specialization. We referred to putting people in a box before, and then they're limited to that box. You're the DBA. You're you're only the DBA. I can't listen to you if you're going to talk about, you know, uh, customer requirements or anything else because you're the DBA. Now, we'll defer to you on the DBA stuff, but – and we've got to stop doing this. I think now that uh, the teams that have uh, moved to um, one of two directions – I see, seem to be the most uh, um, effective at this. One is everybody has the same title. Uh, we're all consultants. We're all team members. We're all developers. We're all whatever. So we get out of this mindset of someone with a certain title also has a certain role and responsibility. We, get, we move away from that to where we're saying we're all responsible now, um, and we're all required to... Contribute in whatever way our skills and experience and, and our minds might come up with, again, applying emergence. That's one approach. The other approach I've seen is everyone makes up their own title, and you can keep that title as long as everybody on your team agrees. So you can't call yourself, you know, the grand database wizard if no one on your team agrees that you're the grand database wizard. So but but what you could do is you know if I could say well you know and I could get feedback and again this is emergent so we're coming to a point where we can agree and now I'm the the grand poobah of of, of data stuff okay great now at this point I, I can avoid being the DBA because I'm I I, I may have a, a a a preponderance or a set of training uh, or preference to deal with data but that doesn't create this artificial boundary or box around me that calling me a DBA does. Um, and so either one of those approaches, and there's lots uh, that can be done and that I've seen done in both approaches, is is one thing. And what that does is that moves us to this concept of generalizing specialists. I remember hearing about this uh, years ago from, uh, from a guy that's in the industry that I had a lot of respect for. He's one of those guys that always just seems like he's you know, light years ahead of everyone else. He, he was in, introducing this idea when the first time I heard it, um, this idea that I can, uh, you know, the, the newer model that we, would, we might use it, it would be called the T-shaped person. Uh, that's been around a little, I don't know, 10, 10 years or so uh, at least uh that we're no longer just a vertical in in our database uh, person but we also have some experience with other things we know how to do integration we know how to do testing we know how to do some design or architecture um we're not limited to this one skill set or or necessarily uh constrained in that way and and what i hear leaders say is we want more t-shaped people but then everything they do reinforces the i-shaped person um, the reviews, the, the titles, the pay scales, the reward system is all based off of an i shaped person. So they're not doing anything to really encourage the T-shaped behavior. It really just becomes uh, potentially an albatross around someone's neck if they really demonstrate that well. So what we're really looking for is someone who maybe isn't, there. no one's good at everything, no one's interested in everything, but this makes sure that we're we're not artificially uh, enclosing someone and, and imposing boundaries on them that uh, may just be where their skill set is right now. Uh, but I know a lot of people who, you know, went to college, got a degree in marketing, um, got a job in uh, sales. Uh, found out that they like to code, and they're some of the best uh, technologists that I've ever worked with. A complete shift of skill set, uh, and 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 they can do the marketing. Uh, but it, but guess what? I, I didn't even know what this coding thing was. So how how would I be interested in that? I think that uh, another piece that we're missing when we have the the, the chief technology office or the the the, the uh, set of enterprise architects. And I've been parts of all these groups at some point in my career. Um, and they're going to do all of the thinking up front, and then they're going to, you know, kind of mandate these designs or architectures or tool selections or technology stacks or whatever it might be. Um, it is true that the masses do not have the skill set to make a lot of these decisions. And I would submit, and they never will, as long as the people in the ivory tower continue to hoard the uh not only the expertise, but the time that they're allowed to spend on it. If all my time, the opportunity. So what we're doing is we no longer we're we're again, we're we're separating this idea, this opportunity to learn. We no longer have shared learning. So if someone comes to the architects and says, uh, you know, we've got this problem, can you help us figure out what technologies we should use? And we've got to integrate with this legacy system, this third party system. And okay, now we've got a lot of stuff to, to track down, it makes sense to me that The architectures first of all, as part of a cross-functional team, each one of them should be part of a team, not a team of architects, a team uh, that's going to go from idea, problem, whatever, all the way to through to production. Because the other thing that happens, which we all know from a waterfall environment, Uh, In the the scenario that you described, the architects do something, they hand it off, now they're on to the next problem or two problems later. They don't know the impact of their decisions because they never saw it in production. They never wrestled with getting these two wires to line up. So they lose that learning. Again, that that shared opportunity for learning. Um, So now we're back to, let's talk about a self-organizing team. Well, they emerge from self-organizing teams. Let's make sure we have all the skill sets Let's talk about generalizing specialists so that we're no longer uh, trying to shoehorn people into a narrower set. We're just saying, "I'm a technologist." You know, right now I'm focusing on this. This is my primary skill to learn, but that's it. And then we get into the really hard one, which a lot of people say they don't do. But that's in our archaeology example. There's not a lot of evidence that they're that they're not doing this, and that is the big design up front. So whether your big design up front is so-called uh, design sprints, which is very popular, Silicon Valley, you know, one or two weeks ahead where all the UX folks, again, just like the architects, are isolated from the team. They're going to make all the decisions about the touchy-feely stuff for some system, and then they're going to hand it off, or the architects, or whoever. It doesn't matter what the skill set is. Uh, Those skill sets need to be embedded into the people who are doing the development, who are doing the design, who are doing the delivery, who are doing the support, so that the learning curve is complete. Uh, The shared learning is across all skill sets. And now we're getting back to the original principle, the best architectures emerge. They don't emerge from the architecture group. They emerge from production. If
0: you take that idea... And you go, and some people use user stories. The idea of a user story, there could be an epic, which is a theme, it's a big rock, and that's broken down into user stories, which are different types of users and their stories. And their acceptance criteria at the end of that basically says, this system should, this person should be able to do this, this person shouldn't be able to do this, these are the system characteristics, da-da-da-da-da. You know, we're not talking about this here with any great depth, but... Another set of good books that's really great for reference are the books written by Mike Cohn on user stories, user story applied, estimating, etc. And you know, one of the interesting things about um, the approach that he posits in that material is similar to what we're already discussing, discussing is the team is multidisciplinary. In other words, those people who sit down and say, this is the epic These are the stories, how they deconstruct into stories. And these stories deconstruct into these acceptance criteria. Those people all represent the different stripes or ideas in this polyculture, which is information security, data, analytics, software development, tools, tool chains, delivery pipelines, all that stuff. All these things come together as one team. So the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. And those self-organizing teams actually assume a polyculture, not a monoculture. And I think that's one of the important things we're talking about and differentiating here as well, which is, if I have the tribe of architects, it's still a monoculture. But if I have a self-emerging team, a self-solving team that includes an architect-type thinker plus, 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 now I have a polyculture. I have a higher probability of capturing a rich environment to deliver customer delight,
1: but I think a lot of companies have gotten too busy doing the kinds of following the, the approach that you outlined, where we've got specialists and they they just hand it down the assembly line to someone else, and it loses that that essence, the thing that makes it unique, the 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 properties that allow the customer to have to be delighted in that unique way. Um, I think a lot of that just gets it, it gets uh, it gets squeezed out of the process. Because it, it, there's no way it can be handed down from the first group to the second group because there's no one in the second group who experienced it with the first group. There's no one in the tenth group who experienced anything from the previous nine groups. So we, the, the process itself strangles the, uh, the essence of learning that occurred at any point before it. Uh, no matter how it was documented, no matter you know how many uh, help videos were created, it it it's not the same. Um, and I've run this experiment many times in, in coaching and training, where uh, we'll have uh, two different teams, and they're roughly comparable in in most ways that 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 we're trying to uh, to to measure in in some way. And one team, we will do very much as everybody learns at, at the same speed. Everybody learns. We're going to slow down if we need to. Uh, the other team will be very much, uh, uh, we're going to try to be agile. We're going to do some stuff, but we're just going to take the, we're going to be an order taker. Whoever, you know, the architects are going to give us this. The product owner is going to give us this, and and we'll just do our piece, and then we'll hand it to the testers. And it is undeniably that the, the, the second group that follows that very much uh, um, well-worn, uh, well-understood approach, they're going to appear to be faster at the beginning because the delta in what they're doing versus what they've always done is very small. So their need to adapt to change is, is, is very, very small, where the other folks are going to appear to to be just completely losing it. You know, they're just, I mean, they're not even the tortoise. The tortoise is, is running circles on them because they appear to be going so slow but there will be uh, multiple times at which they will not only leapfrog ahead, they will time travel. They will move ahead at, at, a, at a pace which is unpredictable because it will it will stutter a little bit. Uh, it's not a constant pace, but what is constant is that they're always moving forward. They're always benefiting from this idea of a shared learning uh, experience and emergence. The, the best ideas are coming from this now group who is now not just uh, shared a uh, uh, problem to solve, but they have shared the experience and the journey uh, for however long they've been able to be on it. And those teams are always uh, the one, those are the teams everybody wants to be on after the fact, because they're like, they can tell these guys care, they have fun, it means something to them. Uh, they got everything. I mean, th- th- everything that you would want in, in, a, in a group, uh, a working group that uh, people that you care about. I think that's a really
0: good segue to the last principle on the list. And I'd like to open it up by just talking about this. You know, when I decided I wanted to get into ranching, I believed it was about the cattle. And a couple of old gents that talked to me looked at me like, you're fun. They looked at me, and I know that they were saying, bless his heart, because how I was corrected is they said, no, sir, you are in the business of farming microorganisms, microbes. In other words, you are a soil farmer, because without soil, there is no grass, and without a diversity, a diversified ecosystem of grass, there is no cattle, and without good, healthy cattle, there is no revenue, so you might as well pick a different career. And so I believed it was about the cattle, and they told me it was about the soil, Similarly, with this manifesto and these principles, I believe that we're actually talking about growing people, not delivering software. Everything about this is growing people. And to your point earlier... Your team only becomes as great as you enable them to become. I mean, first of all, you have to hire people with great attitudes, great aptitudes. They sit the type of people that sit on the bump of the chair or stand the whole time, and they can't wait to get into it. So you have to hire those types of people. But when you bring them together and say, you are team, we need to be team, let's go party and just rock and roll on this stuff, they're only going to become as great as you enable them to become great. So if you only let one person do the thinking, and everybody else just has to obey, That's not a team, that's not growing a team. And obviously in that other illustration, that's not gonna be healthy soil and therefore not good cattle and so on. But if you want to grow a team to your point where it may look like they're starting off really, really super slow, slower than a tortoise, but at some point they're gonna time travel, this conversation is about growing people, not delivering software. Delivering software just happens to be the thing. But if we take all these ideas and apply them to any industry, software also, it's 100% about growing, thoughtful people who are working together to rock and roll. So at regular intervals, this last principle, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. I love that. We're basically saying we're giving people the opportunity to think, talk, see, recommend, or observe, and change. And an interesting thing is, it has to be an environment where they know they have permission. Or they need to be able to say, these were amazing activities, amazing results, super happy to be here, let's do this 47 more times until it doesn't make sense, but at regular intervals, whatever that is, the team needs to be given permission to think and decide and evolve together because we're in the business of growing people
1: well again i think that's a great observation i think that that really gets to uh, the essence of the the first page of the manifesto is it really is about people and uh the way i kind of over generalize in a nutshell you know kind of the 10 words or less what is what is agile what is agility to me, it's, it's this idea of we have this relentless pursuit. For a long time, it was just the pursuit of value, but I think it's the relentless pursuit of value. And I think it's the idea that we constantly have people who are engaged in a positive way. And I think that's what you're describing. It's people who want to be here. It's people who want to continue on this journey. It's people who feel uh, safe to be able to raise their hand, because they don't understand something that everyone else seems to understand, as well as people who who are just questioning what appears to be the prevailing thinking. Uh, We've been doing this for a little while. We've kind of been going down this path. Um, How are we going to deal with X? I haven't heard anybody deal with X. I'm the new guy here, and I don't know anything about it, but I really don't understand, Is is it just me? And I think a huge aspect of that is knowing that it's safe to do so but doing so in a way that is constructive and not accusatory. We need to remove this idea that that we're, it, we have to judge everybody's idea, and we have to remove this this um, marriage that we that we impose on. If someone says something, it's their opinion, it's their idea, and we dislike it, then that we respond in a way that indicates we dislike them. We have to remove this idea, and and I think that's really where we get to the the true cross functional team, because all of this, none of this happens without trust. The way that uh, team members get to that point of safety is that I know I can trust you. Um, if if I've got a delicate conversation, I'm not going to go to you know people I may know really well or have known for decades. I'm going to go to someone I trust, someone I trust that's not going to, you know, reveal the confidence that's going to give me uh, sound advice, someone that may not have any answers, but I know I can trust them to be on my side. They're going to, and, and if they need to tell me something that's for my own good because I can't see it, I not only uh, value them in order to have that conversation, but I'm willing to listen to them because I know that they are, they're doing this for me. They're not just doing this for them or because they don't have the time or any of the other things. They're actually taking me in consideration and trying to figure out what's the best thing I can do to help him uh, at this point and based on the conversation of the topic or or whatever it is that's going on i think those are critical elements of having a successful team period and then when we add in the the self-organized and the, and the cross-functional those are other characteristics of of again successful uh, high-performing teams not just teams these are these are the teams that everybody wants these are the teams everybody wants to be on um, and so I think absolutely, I think the re- reflection or this iterative cycle of how do we get better? Uh, if anything, this 12th principle represents for me that the Agile Manifesto has incorporated in it, in it, with, within its structure, the requirement in order to achieve agility, you are required to create a learning environment, a learning culture. It is not possible for you to, to maintain agility without. So a lot of the things we've talked about are things that stifle, uh, the ability to be agility, the ability to, uh, to innovate, the ability to, uh, have a, a safe environment to say, I think we're about to drive off the road. Is that what we want to do? Um, because someone else, you know, higher up the food chain is, beating their chest or screaming or pounding their, their fists or whatever else they might be doing, uh, which creates that environment that says, OK, obviously, I'm, I'm the, the, the newest guy on the totem pole. There's no way they're going to listen to me. Um, when in reality, the fact that I'm the new guy gives me a unique perspective, and that should be valued by everyone else on the team. They should realize I don't see things the way they do yet. And I can help them see some of their blind spots. I can help them see some of the weaknesses that, that they're just, uh, they've been looking at it so long that they don't, uh, aren't aware of it. Um, I know I do that all the time. I try to make sure people see things, you know, before, before I kind of make them available to the masses. That doesn't mean any of us will catch everything, but I'm trying to, to, I'm trying to increase that value for everybody. Well, let me unpack that just a little bit. When we're
0: talking about psychological safety for people who may or may not be familiar with those word, that word combination, we're not talking about padded rooms where nobody is ever going to say something that might hurt your feelings. We're not talking about spaces where people don't really say what they're thinking for fear of offending someone else. Every human and every human on these teams has a responsibility to understand And communicate. And oftentimes that happens with questions. By asking questions like, what do you think about? Have you considered? What would happen if? What are our other options? Just questions that stimulate ongoing evolution. That fosters an environment of learning. A psychologically safe environment doesn't mean we aren't transparent with each other and direct and communicative, it does suggest that we honor and respect each other, which is, Derek, the thing that you just said, um, internally, all my lights are going off, and I'm thinking that that's one of the craziest things I've ever heard, good good sir. It's possible I don't understand it. It's possible I completely missed the bus. It's not making sense to me. Could you re-explain it in a different way? I'm being dense. That's a non-threatening way for me to say, dude, Uh, I think you're saying crazy things, but I realize that I could also be the hoser here, so let's go a second at bat here. It's got to be an environment that fosters, encourages, enables, invites the opportunity to learn. And learning happens with questions. Declarative statements, like this one, shut conversations down. This is all about people, all day, every day all of the time. And until we figure out how to grow and enable and equip and educate and love people, you may or may not deliver whatever it is that you deliver software included.
1: Completely agree. The, the, the thing that a lot of folks are uh, confused about the agile manifesto, uh, especially when they see it uh, from the standpoint of, of software technology, developing a, a technical uh, uh, product. Uh, there's nothing in here about version control or about what programming language to pick. Or uh, you know, do you need a client server architecture? Should you be using the cloud? Uh, uh, where does mobile fit? None of these things are here, much less you know, higher order things like how reactive does your system need to be? How do you scale it? How do you deal with internationalization? How do you deal with uh, security? Uh, you know, uh, there are really complex uh, elements of good uh, designs, good software products, uh, services, architectures, how do you deal with all of that? It's not here, it doesn't tell me what to do. Uh, no, it doesn't. Because as you have so uh, eloquently pointed out, almost all of these have to do with the people. They have to deal with directly with how as a as a group, in order for us to come close to dealing with the complexity of, of the technology and the problems we're solving with, we have to create an environment in which it's safe for us to be ourselves. it's safe for us to grow and learn, it's safe for us to make a mistake, it's safe for us to uh, be able to share with somebody to say, "You know what i that that doesn't make sense to me. I don't like it. It feels funny. Um, is there a better option? Is there something else we could do and And it's perfectly acceptable to say, You know what I, 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 it's not that I disagree with you, but based on uh, delivering for our client, I think given this short time frame, we could still deliver something here, and then we could come back and address that in the future thing. And that's perfectly okay. And, but the thing that, that rarely happens in the real world is that if we get that agreement and then we release it, we never come back to the thing and fix it. Uh, you know, the, 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 we not only have uh, the technical debt, which folks uh, nowadays, or at least most of them have heard that expression, um, we now have people debt. We have debt that we have damaged our ability to trust whether it's someone inside the team or outside the team. Now we're back to principle number six, you know, the most effective and efficient way to communicate. Uh, because I don't have to communicate with you face-to-face. I can make this decision, uh, you know, unilaterally, and it's going to affect you. We're not going to deal with that anymore. It's not a high priority in my backlog, so... You know, if you guys can't deal with it tough, I'll get some other guys who can't. This is not a psychologically safe environment. This is not a learning environment. This is not a, an environment that values people and interactions over processes and tools. Um, so when we go to try to, now we're, now we're archeologists again, and we go say, where's the evidence of agility? The fact that we might be having standups <laughs> five times a day or, or that we're tracking things with user stories or any of these other, these are all practices. They're, they're, they're all optional. Uh, none of those are required for for agility. Um, they're all just a mechanism, a means to communicate, a means to value uh, ideas and and to represent uh, customer value or uh, team value or organizational value, and a way for us to begin to try to figure out how we communicate and share that information. I think that's that's uh, that's a big difference in how most people read the Agile Manifesto. Uh, they don't, they're looking at it as as the, uh, the decrypt software development for them. That's not, it, it's decrypting it, but not the part that they're thinking. So the best architectures, requirements, of designs
0: come from a self-organizing team is basically what it's saying. And at regular intervals, that self-organizing team takes time to reflect and learn and change. Now, how do you see that happening in barbecue?
1: What does that look like when you're barbecuing? So I think I think the idea of a self-organizing team in barbecue is uh is very apparent when we watch uh you know some of these TV shows uh, whether it's uh you know public uh television cable channels or Netflix or whatever and you watch a competition and I don't mean a competition with uh you know uh Myron Mixon or uh, some of these guys who are world famous and have been for decades. I'm talking about the you know the the, the guy and his wife and the brother-in-law and the, you know, the cousin who are on the barbecue team who are trying to compete, uh, they're going to be given a set of problems that they're not expecting. Now, they're ready for a lot of stuff, and they've practiced. They've done what they could. But, again, they don't have any control over the weather. They may not have as much control over the fire as they think they do. The uh, expectations of the judges may change the day of the event. Uh, they may be given some rules that they weren't planning on. Um, so now they've got to come up with, well, now we have to make something that we weren't planning on. Well, we didn't bring a recipe for that. So the the idea of a self organized okay, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Can we, you know, we got this or this. We basically, we can make pork chops or we can make, you know, stew. Okay. Well, okay, I don't know which one. So now we get to the point of uh, it's not just reacting. It's how much do I trust the other people on the team? I I know that Matthew's really good at you know things that are of this type of nature or these types of seasonings. If we have ingredients that fit that profile, I will I might want to defer just because I will be able to trust him and know he's going to build something that's going to be great. Um, it it may not win, but it it will be great regardless. Um, and and that's that's the this idea of the self organizing the trust and in barbecue this like I said it's the most apparent there. Now for folks that are are home uh, you know backyard uh, barbecue guys uh, you know like me, I think that uh, this becomes uh, real apparent uh, in in just some examples that we've already given, uh, like uh, you know how how much fat should I trim off a brisket? Well, you know there was some requirements uh, there was designs that people said that they had success with and I tried those. It turned out that it's not that they worked or didn't work necessarily. I can rank them on how much success I had. But if I found a better way of doing it, if it emerged through experience and practice, and it was a better method for me, well, that's why uh, it emerged. I didn't uh, limit myself to saying, well, this is the requirement. Somebody else did all the design thinking up front. uh, And so I'm just going to follow their instructions. It's great as a starting point. Um, and I, I definitely would warn people against starting out doing their own thing uh, before you've learned how to do, follow some other people who've been before you. Uh, that's going to slow you down quite a bit if you, if you don't, but I think that's part of the learning curve. And that, that's why we have things like Scrum. That's why we have extreme programming. Those are people who've gone before you. This is a starting blueprint. Um, but the way that I often try to reset people's ex- expectations is they think, well, we've been doing Scrum for six months, we're experts at it, and you know all that. And I said, well, first of all, you understand, you should always do Scrum out of the box before you, if you've never done it before, until you start making changes. Uh, second of all, you understand Scrum is for kindergartners. This is the beginning entry point. This is not the master level. Um, not that Scrum that masters can't use Scrum. That's not what I said. There's a there, you know, listen to what I said. I said it's the beginning point. It's the entry point. This is for This is the training wheels. Excellent way to start. It's a great way to start. And, and, and XP is a great way to start. And, and, and all I'm saying is that I think that's uh, it, it's definitely people centric um, for barbecue. It's people centric. And I think you can apply a lot of these same things. You can apply a lot of the techniques. You can you can write user stories for your barbecue recipes you can write uh you can create a kanban board for everything that's going to go on the pit and and keep track of is it on the pit is it off the pit you know uh where's it at uh there's a lot of these things will translate uh, the the different uh, building blocks that you have for so so principle 11 uh, i think the the best things emerge and they emerge with what you're comfortable with what you gain proficiency with i think for principle number 12 after every cook after every barbecue contest uh, a, a, a rep, you have to have a retrospective. You have to go back and say, okay, what did we do? What happened? Why did we make those reactions? How did we recover? Uh, did we think we did well? Did we think, uh, was there a better way? Was there something that we knew about that we could have done that we just didn't occur to us? And if so, how can we make that more evident next time? So I think that uh, that happens whether you're part of a contest or you're, again, you're just just doing, just doing ribs in your backyard. So let me,
0: let me just bring it all the way back around to how we started this conversation, which was around the manifesto in and of itself. While there's value in the items on the right, we value the items on the left more. Now, you could argue that that's a declarative statement, but that's not how I read it. How I read it is, hey, we favor these practices, these principles, these tenets, these behaviors. That doesn't mean there aren't others. But these are the ones that we have found enable the greatest number of value-based ripples in the journey. And so I love that as the bookend to this whole conversation, because they basically said, hey, here are the things that we have seen, here are the things that we think, here are the things that we favor and believe and suggest and recommend and would love to talk to you about it and we're going to drill down harder on it with the the principles as well, there's value in the items on the right. So they didn't make any declarative statement that says, you must not, you shall not, this should never happen. It wasn't a set of negative statements. It was a set of positive statements that says, this can work and this can work. However, we favor this one over here because we feel like the, the results are more rich. There's a greater value proposition than the things on the left. So I I love the fact that it's a positive set of statements. We favor this. This can work also. We favor this. Because they could have gone completely negative on it, which is to say, anything that has come before us is stupid. Anything that's contrary to what we document is also stupid. If there are new versions of this in the future, that's stupid. This will stand the test of times forever, and that would be completely counterintuitive or even antithetical to its entire point of existence, which is learn, change, become. And to your point earlier, this doesn't have a darn thing to do with tools or any Cody things or any technical things. It's all about people. Everywhere in all of the directions.
1: And so the, the one of the things we talked about early on uh in this conversation was my uh the, the, the learning that I had uh come across that originally or initially in, in my career once I was introduced to, to technology and building technology, that uh when you tried to build something and try to figure out what the problem is, that people were about ten percent of the problem and technology was about ninety percent of the problem. And with the uh, the caveat that, yes, technology's grown tremendously, and, and we've got a lot more options available today than we, than, than we did uh, back in the dinosaur days that I'm, I'm initially referring to. Um, but through that, through that uh, time, I've come to know or, or, or revised my thinking to believe that technology is now a 5% to 10% of the equation, and and people are really 90 to 95% of the equation. And so... When we're dealing with people, we realize this is really about people. Um, and we realize that uh, while there is value to the items on the right, as you said, it doesn't mean there's no value. There is value. We're, we're making that uh, declaration. But we value the items on the left more. And why do we value them? Because of the first part of the, the manifesto uh, and because of the principles that are, are how we illustrate that. I think uh, I saw a quote recently that uh, – that i thought uh, it's it's not attributed to anybody so uh, i'm not sure who who originally said it but i thought it was a great synopsis really of of agility and that is our responsibility in responding to change is to adapt so the the, the to me the thinking here is the reason the the reason people focus on tools the reason people don't focus on people is because tools are easy people are hard um, we don't want to, to solve the hard problem. We, we want to show progress. We want to, uh, we want to fill up the queue with busyness. And uh, one of the, the things that I've learned is to never mistake activity or busyness for results. Um, lots of organizations are filled with activity. Uh, they've got busyness all over the place. Nobody can ever get to everything on the list that they're given. And and they contribute to that list themselves because of the other thing, you know, the, the constraints, the environment, the re- reward system. But uh, now we're back to wearing our, our, our archaeologist hat. Uh, is there evidence of agility? Is there a continuous, frequent uh, delivery of value with customer feedback to help us pivot or persist? Um, and if there's not, then we may not, uh, you know, when we're back to executives wondering, hey, are we, you know, uh, we're spending a lot of money training and making this change. Is this really worth it? Uh, the answer may be no. Uh, you're not getting the value uh, you should be getting, nor are you getting the value that you have potential because uh, the environment you've created has shut people down. It, it has, uh, you've copied and pasted your your previous organizational chart and just renamed everybody that was a project manager to a scrum master. And, you know, the infinite number of, of, of anti-patterns that you and I have seen uh, about things not to do. I mean, how many volumes of books could we write of these are things not to do. This is almost guaranteed to constrain, if not completely kill agility. I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation, walking
0: through the manifesto, walking through the principles. And in particular, I have few times in my life been more hungry than when we have paralleled these things to barbecue. But it makes absolute sense to me that if you don't want to talk about software, let's talk about barbecue. And you can absolutely apply this agile software development manifesto from top to bottom to a barbecue journey. Every word in these sentences can be applied to barbecue, and I love it.
1: As I said, I've been looking to do this for a while. I really appreciate you uh, uh, pointing my my uh, my brain and my conversation uh, in, in, in this direction and helping me uh, uh, be able to focus on it for a little while. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you for listening. This is the final episode of this series with Derek Lane and the intersection of barbecue and the Agile Manifesto.
1: The Long Way Around the Barn is brought to you by Trility Consulting where Matthew serves as the CEO and president. If you need to find a more simple, reliable path to achieve your desired outcomes, visit trility.io.
0: To my listeners, thank you for staying with us. I hope you're able to take what you heard today and apply it in your context so that you're able to realize the predictable, repeatable outcomes you desire for you, your teams, company, and clients. Thank you.